Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you, and I want to welcome all of you to the Clifton Church of Christ, and we're especially glad if you're a visitor, and we are thankful that you decided to join us this morning. We're going through a series on Deuteronomy, and I want to play a little game that I hope helps um, make the point of the message. So the game is going to be called, What Does This Tell Us About the Boss? Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a rule, and we're going to try and, based on seeing the rule or the command, we're going to try and interpret maybe a little something about what it says about the boss. And these, I, I went online and I, I looked up like strange HR rules at businesses, and there were some, some very strange ones out there. So what I decided to do is I picked a few that are examples from mine and Catherine's own life personally. So, oh, so the first one is, I guess I thought I maybe put them on there. I guess I didn't. So the first one is, first rule is we do not whine in this family, okay? That's an example of something we say all the time. I feel like I say that a lot. Over and over I'll say, we do not whine in this family, okay? So you can interpret, hmm, what does that say about Drew and Catherine based on the fact that that's one of their things that they over and over emphasize? Hopefully it's that we don't whine, but maybe that comes from a place of our life is too good to whine. Catherine always shakes her head at me whenever we're sitting at the dinner table and one of the kids won't eat their food. And I'm like, Marshall, there are kids all over the world that aren't going to get to eat tonight and you're not going to eat this because you don't like how it tastes. And I'm not really joking, but you know, she's like, Drew, he's two. He's not going to understand this. But to me, that's an example. You know, it's like, we can't, we're not going to whine about this when we, we're way too blessed. We're so blessed to have what we have. There's no room in our family for whining. Number two, uh, no cell phones allowed. When I was a youth minister, I can't tell you the number of times I did a retreat or a mission trip or something, and I said, all right, whenever we leave, everyone's got to turn in their cell phones, okay? When we get to the camp, you got to turn in your cell phones when you get to the retreat. And I know that for some youth ministers, that's like, that is a huge point because it's like, if I tell my kids that's going to be the rule, I'm not going to have any kids come. So how do I find this balance? And for me, I think it said something that I, I thought to myself, you know what? I hope that the kids will still come. And I would be devastated if a kid was wanting to come, know about Jesus at a retreat, and decided not to come because there was a rule that they would have to turn in their cell phone. That would make me sad. But I also know, for the sake of what I wanted to happen at the place, I was not going to sacrifice that. I wasn't going to sacrifice the whole group being able to experience that. So, I don't know what that says about me, but it says something. Number three, uh, this one was whenever Catherine was in nursing school. I remember sitting beside her. It was the orientation for nursing school. She went to A&M and got a, a nutrition degree because she thought she was going to be a nutritionist. And then uh, as she was getting closer, she realized, you know what, I want to be a nurse. And instead of dropping out, because technically to go to nursing school, you don't need a full four-year degree to start doing nursing school. She decided to go ahead and graduate with her four-year degree and then do a one-year nursing school program. And this was through U of H. And what I remember is this school was famous for, like, they've been in however long they've been, this is UH Sugarland, for however long they've been going on, they hadn't had a single person not pass the NCLEX. I thought, man, that says a lot. But what I learned is, is that's because they start off with around 90 students and end with around 35 students. Because they have this three-strike policy. 
there are certain projects that you have to do, certain tests that you have to do, and if you get three strikes, you're cut from the program. And so I remember, you know, for Catherine, you could think, wow, this is a very cutthroat program. You know, this is a, that's a strong rule. What if, what if you've got someone who's working really hard? Don't you think maybe four strikes? What if, what if it's a month left? This program has a three-strike policy, and part of what it says is, is it says we care a lot about being able to say we have a 100% NCLEX test pass. And the way that we guarantee that is being very cutthroat about who stays and who doesn't. Does that make sense? That is, in my opinion, a perfectly fine thing for them to do, but it's also not the most, like, I don't know, uh, gracious thing to do, right? But I also understand it. We don't want nurses who are passing tests because we've lowered the bar so much that, like, you know, oh, well, I passed the test, you know, so I, I guess I'm great at this. I, I would like my nurse to be fairly qualified. So I can understand it on both sides. Now, the fourth one is, this is one that I learned whenever I moved here. And I think it's safe to bring this up. I'm not going to go into the history. But when I started working here, I learned that in my first six months of working here, I was going to have to preach a series on choosing new elders and deacons. Because every three years, a rule of our church family is that every three years, all the elders and deacons are no longer elders and deacons, and we re-elect new elders and deacons. I had never heard that before, okay? Guess what? The reason for that rule is because there's a story behind it. Does that make sense? There is. It says something about our church that we had to have a reason for saying, you know, we don't want this to be something where once you become an elder, it's like being a Supreme Court judge. You know, it's a life thing. We want this to be something where there is a rotation. It says something. Does that make sense? I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I had never heard that before. But the, the rule was born out of that. So the point I made when I, I think early in this series, and I've got this little deep graphic to try and show you this, is that I tried to establish this idea that who God is, his character, determines what we believe is right and wrong. If you want to go back to that sermon, I said to you, if you don't have a God, then you're determination of what is right and what is wrong is up to you. You have no, there's no reason for anyone to tell you, well, this is what I think you should or shouldn't do without having something that says, at my core, the thing I ground what is right, what is wrong is who I believe God is. And so God's character determines that. And so we see Moses commanding the Israelites, this is how you need to live in covenant with God. And it's not because God just made up a bunch of random rules. It's because those commands are an outflow of who God is. And so as we are in this section of Deuteronomy between 12 and 26, it is the most command section. It is the most Moses reiterating the rules and explaining the rules section. And it can be really lame to do a bunch of sermons on the rules. But if you see those commands and the whole lens in which you see them is this second part of the slide, which is instead of us hearing what God's character is and then seeing the rules that he made up, what we're going to get to do today is we are going to read the commands, and then we're going to ask ourselves the question, what does that say about God's character? You with me? Does that make sense? A.W. Tozer has this great quote that he says, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would tell you, part of how we shape how we interpret these commands, how we shape, how we interpret is what you picture when you think about God. If you picture God as a mean, vengeful God, ready to smite you, then the commands are going to look like one thing. 
If you picture Jesus when you see these commands, then the commands are going to look like something else. Okay? All right. So what we're going to do is I've got a, a decent amount of reading today, and then we're going to have four or no three kind of like what does this say about God's character as an outcome of this. So from Deuteronomy 15, if you want to follow along in your Bible or on the screen, we're going to read this. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. This language, part of what is why, why did he talk about borrowing and now ruling? It's because, as we all know, when you owe someone something, they own you. And so you're not going to borrow from other nations because then they'll own you. But you will let other nations borrow from you. Okay, that's part of why. Why did he put those two lines together? If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Well, the seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. This is not what we're going to talk about in today's sermon, but Jesus quotes, There will always be poor among you, and lots of people have taken that as an excuse not to help the poor. But what he's doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy. There will always be poor people among you. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Okay, so box then. And any of your people... Hebrew men or women sell themselves to you and serve you six years. This is a common practice. If you had a debt, there was not, there wasn't, uh, you know, credit cards back then. It was, well, the way I'm going to pay off this debt is I'm going to be a servant for you. So if anyone becomes a servant, they sell themselves to you to serve. In, six, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. And then one last section. This is from actually Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 15 has a lot to do with how we should treat the poor and the oppressed. Deuteronomy 14 has a lot to do with tithing. But at the very end, there's this little line. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of this year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, if you remember when God gave the land to the people, none of the land was given to the Levites because they were the priests. So how are they going to eat? How are they going to have what they need when they don't have any land to work, any crops to grow? So every three years, bring all the tithes of your produce and into the town so that the Levites... 
and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So let's ask this question. We just read a bunch of commands about what we're supposed to do. And now the question is, what, are, what can we learn about God's character? And as a result, how are we supposed to live as God's children in light of his character? So the first thing is, God's desire is for there to be no poverty. Whenever there are new heavens and new earth, there will not be poverty. This is how he wants it to be. And we as his children, bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, are going to be a part of the process of eradicating poverty. That's God's character. And all these commands are with the desire to eradicate poverty. Verse 4 is our best place where we see this. He says, however, there need be no poor people among you. That doesn't need to exist. For the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he will richly bless you. In this section on that we just read from chapter 14, 28 through 29, I want to I take this and make it a little applicable for a second. If we felt like we had to obey that Deuteronomy 14 command, that means that a tithe is a tenth of what we make. So I want you to imagine if every three years, every single one of us gave a tenth of what we make, and we gave all of that money towards efforts to the poor, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow. How much money do you think that would be if we just talked about literally ten, you know, our money here? That would be a lot of money, right? I didn't I don't know how much each of you give, I don't know how much each of you make. That would be a lot of money. And part of what we see is is we we have no trouble seeing all these places where God says, Hey, give a tithe to me. Yeah, he's got me to worship him. He says, Hey, every three years, take up a tithe and give it to those who need it. Our God is a just God. And when we think about justice, some of you, you might think about all sorts of things. You might think about punishment for criminals. You might think about politics. You might think about economics. But one aspect of God's justice is his desire for all people to have equity and human dignity. One thing that, if you could see the Greek, the word God's justice and his righteousness are the exact same word. Because in the end, the word righteousness means right standing. And we often only look at half of righteousness. We only look at the right standing with God. But the other half of God's righteousness, which is equally as important to him, is right standing with your neighbors. If you are righteous in your right standing with God, but you are in an, a bad place with your neighbors, you are not righteous. If you are in a good standing with your neighbors, but not with God, you are not righteous. To God, his righteousness and justice are social and tangible. Qualities. They are not abstract, and they are not just this one-way street. They are a God and you street, and a God or you and your neighbor street. It's almost like it's that thing that Jesus says all the time: love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. It's almost like it's in everything. It's almost like it's connected. The second thing that we see about God's character from this, and this is the one that I enjoyed learning about this week the most, is that God wants us to go beyond the letter of the law. It's easy when you read Deuteronomy, which literally means second law, to think, oh, we're just reading the laws. But it's evident from this that Moses is trying to articulate, listen, you have the letter of the law, but you've got to go beyond that. So let me give you a few examples from what we've read. Every seven years, so this opening part where it says every seven years you're supposed to cancel debts, there's a lot of debate about whether that means cancel them completely or put them on hold for that year. But one of the things that one person I read articulated that I really liked is they said, 
If you had a debt and you were a poor indentured farmer, the only way you were going to ever pay that debt is from your crops. And God commands that every seven years you were supposed to let your fields sit and have a Sabbath rest. You don't just take a rest yourself once a week, but your land needs to take a rest every seven years. How are these indentured servants going to pay back their debt if for a whole year they're not allowed to farm? Right? And so you can see how Moses is saying, listen, here's the letter of the law, but we can't let these people have to pay their debts because they're not going to be able to. Another example that I really liked is when an indentured servant finishes their seven years, he doesn't say, hey, let them go. What he says is, let them go and give them everything they could possibly need. Because you and I both know that if you took someone who was in poverty and you brought them out of it for seven years, and then all of a sudden you said, all right, get after it and left them with nothing to go do, they're going to be right back at your doorstep being an indentured servant. That's what if we want to get into history class, that's what happened to a lot of slaves whenever slavery ended. A lot of slaves were free slaves after they were freed because where are they going to go? Their masters didn't go, hey, here's a ton of, hey, I'd like to buy you a house. I'd like to do this for you. I'd like to set you up. No, they're going to be right back at their door saying, okay, I, I have nowhere to go. I have to work for you again. And it's going to be like one-tenth of a step above slavery. But Moses says, we're not going to do that. Our God, the letter of the law says free them, but we're going to go beyond that. We're going to do for them what we would want to set them up to be able to have a good life, not to be right back in poverty because God doesn't want there to be poverty. And then the third one, he says, if anyone, this is quoting from verse seven and eight, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. God is not interested in us following the letter of the law. He wants people whose hearts ache for the poor. God's generosity, it extends beyond the letter of the law and teaches us about an attitude, a posture, a lifestyle towards the poor. That line I just read from verse 7, it's very, it's very uh, open-ended. Well, how generous? How many times, Jesus, am I supposed to forgive? Well, you're getting focused on the letter of the law. It's like what I said the teens used to ask all the time. Drew. How far is too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend? It's like, okay, I know you're worried about the letter of the law. I'm trying to get you to think about an attitude or a posture about this. Does that make sense? This is not a topic for Moses and God about social programs. It's about caring for real people with real stories. What will it mean to not merely just hand out charity to the poor? Because that's not what Moses is talking about. He's talking about living side by side with them as people. Charity is not advocated for here, but living with poverty, with oppression, with the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow beside them. Charity can be given and forgotten about. I can easily write a check and move on. That's not what Moses and God care about here. God's character and his commands show us that he is one who desires us to empathize, for us to have presence with them, for us to have authenticity for a person who is interested in helping that person leave their state and enter into a new state. And then this is the last thing we see about God's character, and we see it with this line. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So I'm going to use a parable of Jesus to make this point. This parable is not, this parable is about forgiveness, but I think it applies here. That Jesus tells a story of a king who decided to call up all the people who owed him a debt. He decided to round them all up, and he brings this man who owned him. 10,000 talents. And if I'm correct, 
A talent is worth what, 20 years wages? 10,000 talents. So 10,000 times 20 years wages. That's a ton of money, right? He calls this guy in. He says, all right, you're in big trouble because the guy says, I don't have it, I'm sorry. And he goes, okay, I'm gonna throw you in jail. And the guy says, no, please. And he, all right, I'll forgive you. And then that servant goes out and finds one of the his servants who owes him money, and all he owes him is pennies compared to that. And whenever he he it says he grabs it says in the story he grabs the man by his throat, and he tells him, "You owe me my money," and he throws him in jail. And whenever the master hears about this, he says, "What on earth? How how did how did I forgive you for a fortune?" and forgave you, and you're going to turn right around and you're going to hold this person by the throat for pennies. And, he's, and then, sadly, in the story, this is where Jesus you know, takes it dark. It says, and then the king took the man and threw him in prison to be tortured for the rest of his life. Okay? And what I want you to hear, and the reason why I want to use this story is because when Moses says, I want you to remember that you were slaves, it's not to make you feel pity. What he's doing is he's saying, when you were slaves, God loved you and freed you. You didn't do anything to deserve being freed. God just did. And he made ample provision for you when you left. If you remember, God said, not only will I free you from Egypt, but all the people of Egypt are just going to start handing you stuff, providing for them. And as children of God, they should do no less to their own indentured servants in their situation. When you recognize that you were once a slave, then you are acting in a completely different posture towards those people who are poor. When you act in a way where you realize, you know what, all this that I have, everything God's given me in the promised land isn't because I earned it, it's because I'm a child of God. How am I going to turn around and treat someone else like they don't deserve it, like they haven't earned it? So, this is my concluding line. We see in Deuteronomy what we see in Christ. In Christ, there will be equity. Christ doesn't say, I have, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that's whosoever does the best, he's going to die for them. Anyone, the whole world, the whole, actually the word is cosmos, the entire universe, he's going to love. In Christ, generosity and love go well beyond the letter of the law. In Christ, we remember that we were once slaves to sin, and God loved us, and he freed us, and provided for us, and freed us. And what you need to know is, is that freed people, whether it's from sin or from poverty, free other people. Freed people, free people from all their chains. And so if there's anyone here who has any interest in learning more about what it means to be set free from that, because I know the whole sermon was about poverty, but they are connected. God doesn't just look at you as a human and says, I just care about your soul. I don't really care about anything else. God cares about all of you. And he is going to be at work through his church to care for all of our neighbors, all of those around us. And so what I love about this sermon, what I love about what, when you start reading Deuteronomy, all you think is, oh, just a bunch of rules. And yet what we see is this character of God that changes our lives when we recognize just how much God is willing to go above and beyond in order to reach the poor. And you may be sitting here going, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not poor. But remember that you were once slaves to sin. Remember that what we have is not because we've earned it. What we have is because we have a, a, a gracious God. So 
If any of you would like to learn more about what it means to be set free from sin, we'd love to talk to you. If any of you have any prayer requests, elders are going to be standing at the doors while we stand and while we sing this song.